When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste, motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well being collide. I'm your host, Kelly Beaton, and in this episode, we take a peek behind the curtain of reality TV. Candid Camera is the oldest reality show, and it began on the radio in 1947. A few years later, in the early 90s, I was working at MTV, and back then, the reality formats The Real World, and later on Road Rules, were massive hits around the world. But reality TV as we've come to know it today only really kicked off with Big Brother, which first aired in the Netherlands in 1997. I had a half-Dutch baby in 1997. Not connected, at least I don't think they were. The Intercept was a late 90s Russian reality TV show that involved a member of the public stealing a car and trying not to get caught by the police for 35 minutes. If they succeeded, they won the car. Where I live in Kentish Town, if we had a local version of that show, there'd be loads of kids winning mopeds and iPhones. Just saying. Apparently, Mars One plans to send humans to Mars in 2023 and will choose the voyagers via a reality TV show. Sounds like a bit of a long shot to me. I'm all good, I couldn't be happier. That's my guest today, comedian and presenter Matt Richardson, who, at a very tender age, became co-host of ITV's The Extra Factor, alongside Caroline Flack. I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but as I'm a massive fan of Iceland, the country, not the shop, and I also do love kittens, I'm going in again. Iceland's most successful reality TV show was called Keeping Up with the Katashians, or Katashians, I think that's how I should say it, which was a live stream of four little tiny adoptable kittens living in a weeny weeny house. Oh. oh my God, what a nightmare living round. What a nightmare it is living in North London. <laughs> Eating a grade two listed property is an absolute <laughs> disaster. Matt started stand-up in 2009 at just 18 years old and knocked it out of the park in every comedy competition going while still in his teens. He's now a regular at all the major comedy clubs in the UK, a regular face on television and a popular voice on radio. His podcast, When No One's Watching, unearths the dirty secrets of its celebrity guests and is co-hosted by Matt Willis of Busted Fame. Matt and I talked about careers advice, worst ever gigs and heckles, fame, success, failure, imposter syndrome, worry, writing, performing, Billy Connolly, lovers, haters, parents, autism, dancing on ice, and saying no. But we started when Matt asked me how it is for my children having a mum who's a comedian. Do 
do your children find it like quite embarrassing that you're a comedian now? Yeah, they find it really embarrassing that I'm a comedian. Because you became a comedian as they were old enough to kind of understand that. Yeah, well, we, you and I have approached it from opposite ends because you did yeah. your first gig when you were... 18. 18. I did yeah. my first gig when I was... 45. Isn't it quite nice though that it's a job that you can do that because you're you know doing very well as well and kind of everything's going well but it didn't matter that you didn't start young. Yeah I think the weird thing about it is that you end up um it's sort of like there's different pressures so on the one hand I don't have to worry about I've really got to earn money from comedy because this is it and I don't want to work in a shoe shop forever so I've got to make it work I've kind of got other things I can do and that I have done and that I still do (laughs) so that's a lack of pressure but it's so weird the number of times I've sort of said to people on the circuit you know I got into it a bit late and people when they don't realize quite how old I am will say yeah no me too I did my first gig at 32 and I'm thinking oh oh yeah yeah (laughs) I I can beat that well it's weird because when I started um I started out with like it was like sort of me Angela Barnes Ramesh Ranganathan and Rob Beckett and we're all very different never heard of them never I mean look we I did I my first Edinburgh four-hander was me Ellie Taylor Angela and Ramesh. Wow. You've we, all done quite well, though. We've all done yeah. all right, but I, I am the least successful of the group, I would argue. And um, But what I'd say is, we couldn't sell a t- Like, we really struggled to sell tickets. We, when we sold, like, 20 tickets, we were like, this is the greatest thing ever. Whereas now, we could probably do the O2 just because yeah, of Ramesh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you're doing yourself down a little bit there. I no, mean, but you, still, you know. And did you have... Um, so you started really young. Yes. And you got into it how? Um, it was my dream job. Yeah. So I was obsessed with stand-up as a teenager. And I, when I was at school, when I was doing my A-levels, I had a teacher who did my, I was doing a politics A-level. And I was at parents' evening and, my, and he went, what do you want to do when you leave school? And I went, oh, I don't really know. And my mum went, that's a lie. You know exactly what you want to do. Tell him. And I went, I think I'd quite like to be a stand-up comedian. And he went, <laughs> why shouldn't you be? Because I didn't go to... I think a lot of it is, and as I've learned when you do stand-up, you know, privately educated people get told you can do anything you like. Yeah. Whereas you don't get told that necessarily if you don't get, take that path, which I didn't. Yeah. Um, and he went, why can't, Why shouldn't you? Go and do it. Find a way to do it and do it. And then And this was late, a state school that it you were normal, so, Yeah, normal it, state school. It wasn't a normal state school. Yeah, yeah, a normal. Although okay. not that normal if they're actually encouraging you to do that. Stuff. No, he was amazing. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and then, I, uh, and then I, ended up, I ended up doing my first gig six months later. when I, was, I went to university. I went to Oxford Brooks. And yeah. I didn't live there because I lived nearby. Yeah. And, then, and I was, hated it. But there was a little comedy night I saw an advert for, and I thought, oh, I'm just going to email them asking if I could do five minutes. And what was the little comedy? It wasn't like the Glee. No, no, it just wasn't checking. like straight into the Glee club. <laughs> no, it was um, it was like in the student union at Oxford Brooks, and um, and had you'd never done any because I did a. Were you pre everybody doing a course to become a stand up, or was that a thing when you were starting? The, the, out? So courses I didn't know they existed when I started. Otherwise, I probably would have done one. But they weren't anywhere I grew up or anything. So I just kind of went, oh, I'll email this woman. And she went, yeah, come and do a gig in two weeks. So how did you do it? Um, I just wrote some bits. It was mostly about the university. So yeah. it was all like about, you know, that kind of like chip on their shoulder that people that go to Oxford Brooks have because they don't go to Oxford yeah. and all those sort of things. So in-jokes for a It was crowd. very in-jokey, yeah. yeah. And it yeah. went amazingly. Yeah. Like there, I, there was a joke about one of the campuses which was ugly about, you know, what, what it looked like. It was all very niche. Um, and then I remember going to do my second gig, which is at like some bar in Oxford, and it was an absolute disaster because nobody else there went to Brooks or cared. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I need to sort of expand my horizons a little bit here. So you were doing stuff that was good for your audience, but might not have been able to travel. Yeah, look, and I think when, whenever I get asked if I'm good at corporates now, that's what I say. I'm like, look, I wrote for Oxford Brooks. I can write for a company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though yeah. I can't. But yeah, that, so I did. But that was my world, I suppose. 
Um, and then it, I kind of, yeah, my second gig back was pretty disastrous. Because I had it the other way around. My first gig was an absolute disaster. I did one of those. Oh, yeah, cool. I did um, Logan Murray's Stand Up yeah, and yeah, Deliver. Yeah. And um, all through the course, I was like one of the all right ones at it because I'd done so much corporate speaking and I like knew how to kind of command a room and I yeah, sort of, of understood the theory of jokes. But then when I did it, it was like a sort of recital. It was really shit. I was, <laughs> I'd learnt it. I was like, here's like my sort of little monologue that I'd learnt for the school Was day. it like you were playing a comedian? Yeah, almost? it was. It was. It was kind of... And I was way too polished and slick and all the things you want to be as a corporate keynoter that you don't particularly want to be as a stand-up. So I was diabolical and I think to everybody's horror, no one thought I was going to be quite as bad as I was. And I could sort of see it on my mates, you know those things, it's always just everyone's mates yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. And I could see my mates and everyone else is going, oh God, that's fucking awkward. <laughs> and, and also because I'd, I'd sort of worked in comedy for so many years, I knew how shit it was. I wasn't under any illusion of course. that this was vaguely all right. Because <laughs> that is the thing when you start, you don't know how good or bad gigs are really, yeah. do you? Because yeah. I've looked back, I remember doing a gig like, my fourth gig in or something my mum came to um, and it was at the Laughing Horse New Act to the Year and she filmed it and at the time I was like this is one of the greatest comedy performances ever and about a year ago I found the file on my computer of it and it's appalling like it's really like, what's appalling about it's it it's just what I think like this is a big laugh for people kind of going <laughs> but when you're new you're just so thrilled to that get you get a, a tiny little laugh that yeah. it doesn't matter yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas the fact you worked in comedy <laughs> the problem is you probably could look at it um, and go I wouldn't book this person on a show I was working definitely I, I definitely have that and I always so everything I always look at the sort of level I want to be at I think we all know the gap between what we're doing and what people are doing who we want to be like yeah, 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 there's course. always the next person and I'm aware having watched people progress through the industry from you know from the other side of the camera that they there's always a thing they didn't get that really is galling for them they're like yeah but I never got this thing that I could have got and I'm yeah, not yeah, that yeah. person so you compared to most of us would be seem like a really successful comic yeah, but you're yeah. going oh compared to oh Angela Barnes yeah, yeah, Ramesh exactly, you know? yeah. so there's always that next level but you, when you really do know say you're not just kidding yourself you know people are like you know we'll talk about imposter syndrome because I know your show's um, imposter yeah. but it isn't just a kind of like oh I don't feel confident but really I'm great yeah. it's no really sometimes I'm not and I'm, yeah. I can see that <laughs> so. yeah it's weird isn't it as well and even like even now that you're doing well and you're on television and stuff like and the and same as when I started doing it you, it kind of goes well but I still have like absolute shockers like once, now, what, what's your most recent shocker you don't have to say oh where my it was um, my re- most recent shocker I'll tell you my most recent shocker um, on December 2019 it was I guess the last time we were all properly gigging yeah um, I started a fight broke out during my set because a man was so upset with what I was saying um, and the police were called <laughs> what were you saying um, I, well not what I was saying but like I, I handled a drunk group probably a bit too a bit too aggressively. I stand by it because they were being very aggressive to me. <laughs> a bit defensive Yeah, still. And, and I kind of... I, 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 I said to a bloke um, that he was like this, this... So it was a Christmas party, basically. And in a room of 70 people, they were 40 of them, this one company. That's which, hard. Which is already hard because, like, the power dynamic there is I'm not in charge. It's yeah. what they want. Yeah. And the, the guy... This guy was kind of, like, having a go at me. As soon as I stood on stage, I was comparing... And as soon as I stepped on stage, he was like, well, you're a wanker and all this. And I was like, look, I'm not even starting the gig until you all sit down and shut up. And I just stood there in silence until they did. And you they went quite school teacher Yeah, because, because I kind of thought, at this point, I've been gigging for 12 years. Yeah. And I'm kind of like, I'm just here to do my job. Yeah. Like, I, I'm not here to like try and pander to you. I really want to do a good job for you, but I'm not going to try and fight against the impossible. <laughs> so... This guy was still yelling things. And every time he yelled something, I would, like, say something rude back to him because he was being rude to me. 
and then the, who, what, who transpired to be the managing director of this company yelled something and I implied that his wife was probably at home with another man and much happier at that exact moment because he was such a foul human being. And and he tried to get on the stage and oh, like beat me up. And a, and a bouncer sort of tried to calm him down. And as the bouncer was calming him down, he turned around and he hit the bouncer. And you know, was this you... in like a normal a normal comedy club? Yeah, this yeah. is in just a tonic yeah. in Birmingham. Just a tonic. And um uh, and as it, and, and then what happened was just all hell broke loose like a saloon bar fight like people in the company were trying to pull him off he was hitting people who worked for oh him oh my god and at the end um, and, and the gig didn't happen in the end because the police were called he was taken in charge for GBH uh, against this bouncer or ABH or whatever but the um, the, the, the worst bit was so it all got cancelled and uh, a woman walked past me um, at the end, I was kind of stood there as they were all leaving, like with the venue manager and stuff, kind of talking about what what a mad thing had happened. And she went, "I hope you're happy. You've ruined everyone's night oh by causing this." And I was like, "Oh, I think this, I think this might be the last time I ever do this because yeah. this is miserable." Yeah. Even though I kind of spoke to her, and I was like, "He, like, I was kind of going back to them with exactly what they were saying to yeah. me. They were being really, really horrible, like saying things that I hadn't even started the gig yet." Yeah. And um, that was probably my last worst gig, Rowan. I think this might not be for me anymore. Did you did you still get paid? I'm assuming we still so. got paid. Yeah. Um, uh, my favourite thing though, so uh, Daryl, who run, runs Just yeah. the Tonic, was like, "Oh, well, you have a great story, won't you?" Like, and I was like, "Yeah, that's fair enough, Daryl. I will have a great story." And, um, and he called me the next day, and the man who started the fight by punching them because all of the company's drinks got smashed, he called up and asked for a refund on all the drinks that got smashed during the fight that he started. I'd love to know what the business is. Bloody hell! And did you? So when you do that kind of thing, those things, much as they are a good anecdote. There is something incredibly soul-destroying about gigs not going well anyway. Yeah. And though, so you've travelled up, you live near me in North London, you'd gone up to yeah. Birmingham for the night, it, it's nearly Christmas, you're thinking this will be nice. Yeah, absolutely. MCing's normally not the riskiest place to be, right? You totally. and I both love MCing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just don't see it coming, do you? No, and, and I think the thing is, it's, it's really soul-destroying and it's that point of going... Look, where I am, I do lots of telly and things, but I don't tour big venues. I, like, if I'm on tour, I play to 60 to 150 people. 150 if I'm lucky, but sometimes less than 60. So, like, I'm not at a point where I'm like, right, I can leave the circuit behind and go on tour and not worry about it. I'm very much at a point where I go, okay, I need to still do the circuit. And when you've been around 12 years, you're like, I can't believe I'm still doing gigs where people are fighting. Like, yeah. I should have, I should have, you know, graduated out of this. And you just go... Oh God, maybe I just need to do something else. But it could happen anywhere, couldn't it? I was at one of the first ones back. We're recording this, I should say, uh, just when restrictions are still lifting. So we've all just been back gigging yeah, yeah, yeah. for about a week now. And last week, so it was my third gig back. It was my first gig back emceeing. And it was in a lovely pub garden, a hundred audience, socially distanced. Yeah. Rumesh's brother was running it. So Who lovely. runs good gigs. Runs yeah. great gigs, understands comedy. And there was, and it was a really lovely atmosphere. I was a bit nervous. I couldn't emcee still. Both the acts were a bit like, oh, you know, not sure if it's going to go well. Anyway, went really, really well. Had a lovely time. Did my emcee. Marcus Brigstock was the second of the two Fantastic. acts. Couldn't ask for a better act for that. So he got on, he started doing material about stuff that had happened that day with Dominic Cummings, Martin Bashir. So totally topical in the case of Dominic Cummings stuff that was two hours ago. And a woman started shouting. He was like, what's the problem? She, I couldn't hear because I was at the yeah. back. But there was some hullabaloo going on at this table. And she must have said, why don't you do something current? <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so he said... 
it's two fucking hours ago, you know, how, do you want me to start doing things that are going to happen tomorrow? And she was like, well, yeah, apart from that, he went, well, Martin Bashir's two days old. How current would you like it? Anyway, instead of backing down, she just doubled down. Did she? On Fair her, play to on her. her, for her like she not... was full, like, and then she was like, well, I just don't like you. Um, and then he stopped, I've never seen do it he said he just literally said look I don't normally do this he said I'm just going to stop the gig for a minute like you can I'm just going to stop the gig and I'm just going to say that what you're doing is completely ruining the night for all these people who are having a really lovely time and it's really selfish like trying out ringtones on a crowded train it's a little thing but it's totally fucked yeah, up yeah, everything yeah. for everybody else oh my god and then the rest of the audience like cheer he said everyone else seems to be liking it they were cheering and then she just started smoking to sort of fuck everything up another way you haven't got into this I know you you worked at Next and you yeah, did some yeah, other you had some stuff. other heady bits of your career, but basically you've been a professional comedian. So you got the extra factor when you were twenty two. So I, and I started gigging prof- like just doing comedy is my job since I was twenty. So that is ten years. Pretty much straight out of the gate, yeah, and you're yeah, into yeah. being a comic. So that's what you know. It's ev- it's everything. It's my whole life. Yeah. Yeah. And how so? You wrote the show Imposter, which would have been on tour last year had the pandemic yeah, yeah, not yeah. hit you. So what made? Wh- wh- where is your relationship? with impostordom and um, so that show I mean really lazy I was like well not lazy necessarily but I had a very complicated uh, relationship with a previous agent about Edinburgh basically and they are like you have to go and I really didn't want to I don't feel that you should go and do Edinburgh every year it's not the way you've I've done ever it a worked. few times how many times have you twice. done it twice um, once I, I did a proper big one in 2017 where um, you know I went up with uh, my agents at the time who were famously like spending lots of money there and probably lost nine grand and was in a huge room that was hard to sell and all that kind of stuff and then I was like well if I'm going to go with them I said I'm going to do it my own way and I'm going to go and do the Tron I'm going to do it small mm-hmm. and I'm not going to spend nine grand mm-hmm. because I didn't get nine grand's worth of work from the Edinburgh mm-hmm. and people listening may not know unless they're comics how easy it is to lose nine grand people might be thinking oh what gosh. kind of moron are you but so many people lose money in Edinburgh right? nine grand they were like great news yeah, you've, you've only, only lost, lost nine. nine grand I could have yeah. I think the worst case scenario scenario would have been like 22 yeah you know. it's good to put that parameter out there for people listening because the podcast is about yeah, yeah, yeah. work and as much and as I know, and I know people who've gone up there and like done an okay show and lost 15,000 yeah. pounds so it wasn't too bad and I'd luckily done a few bits that paid for it just before um but it was um it was one of those where I wanted to do it my own way and and, they, and then in the end I ended up leaving that agent and moving this is really boring industry things but I had to do an Edinburgh show so I was like you know what I'm gonna look at all my t- material what kind of links it and it's basically all about how in every situation in life, I feel like I'm not really... I feel like I'm not meant to be alive. Like, I feel like I don't deal with life in an amazing way. And it was like, I feel like an imposter in relationships and everything. So I just threw together, like, I'd say half new and a few old bits and called it imposter because I thought it was quite a catchy, like, one-word title, which I quite like. And what is it then? So knowing you a bit as I do from the circuit and knowing how you come across on stage, as with most of us, that isn't what you would think. So you, you're very um, easy to get on with. You're very sort of confident seeming yeah yeah but there's obviously something going on. i saw you when um when lockdown started to lift and you tweeted saying you know oh hello social anxiety oh nice to see you old friend yeah, yeah, yeah. but you wouldn't come across as somebody like that so what's the difference between what you show and what you feel then? i think look the thing is i think I, I i'm a real worrier so even though like i really am i'm very social and i'm quite confident and like even on stage i'm super confident like, and is I'm, that real so you seem confident I, you know it depends sometimes it is and yeah. sometimes it isn't so I think in life it is and I like meeting people and all that but 
leading up to going to do something like for example like about this podcast today i had a stress dream that you were going to make me do a gig in your garden as the mud sank in like which isn't something that happened but like i had a dream about coming here and like you go well there's a gig in the garden on this like slope and oh yeah and and i went to the there toilet there is actually but we'll do it in a minute i went, I went and i went to the toilet and, and and your house was haunted and i got locked in the toilet by this ghost that didn't like me being there and like that so even though, like, I was really looking forward to seeing you and doing it, like, there's always, like, a worry. And it's, I mean, it's exhausting, but... So is that, so that worrying and that sort of, has that got worse as you've done this kind of job? Or, because in a way you weren't, it sounds patronising to say you weren't fully formed, but you look back at being 20, now you're 30, yeah. and it feels quite, you realise it's quite young, right? Yeah, yeah, 20 yeah. year olds are still only a bit more than children course, in a way. absolutely. So you're, you're evolving as a person doing something that's really very much in front of people and that makes even quite stable people feel quite unstable I, I can't believe I did it so young so I yeah. look back at doing like especially when I started I I was doing like proper weekend gigs like jungle I was doing junglers at 19 wow. which are and and were back then really hard yeah and, I, and but at the time but you know they're going How to come do it? I just did it I just went yeah I'll go and do that and did you have that did you ever think god I'm but somebody said to me that when you're starting out as a comic if you're always doing gigs a level below, if you're looking at gigs a level beyond you and going, I could be doing that gig, you're probably yeah, yeah. at the right point. Absolutely. And is that, did you, because I still feel nervous about getting booked for the big spots at the big clubs. It, it, I, I feel, I always sort of slightly underplay my hand and think, no, no, I'm just really comfortable opening or middle or MC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get very nervous about headlining or anyone billing me as a big anything. Yeah, but yeah, Do you yeah. think there was something about the kind of folly of youth that made you I think, think, I can just do it? Also, I think, that because... Because I kind of had this thing where, like, when I hit 22 and did The Extra Factor, everything went mental. So I didn't really have time to think about it. Because all of a sudden I was, like, doing this big show and people were booking me to headline. And everyone was like, right, you're going on tour. And I was like, okay, cool, let's just do it. And because I didn't have... Because it was so busy, I was like, yep, fine, not a problem. Whereas now, I, I mean, I stress about everything and I worry about being good enough. And even, like, doing big big clubs and things, like, I, I still get nervous about it. And... Especially if I've not done it for, like, I've not done a gig for ages, so that's a, more of a thing. But, yeah, when I was younger, people would go, oh, do you want to go and do this thing, this TV show? I'd be like, yep, yeah, fine, whatever. Whereas now I'm like, oh, will I, will I come across well? Will it be good yeah. for, like, all those things that I just didn't even think about. I was like, yeah, I'll go and do it, why not? I wonder if people do get less confident, because I was thinking at the beginning, and you did um, Say You Think You're Funny. Yeah. Uh, sorry if there are people listening, this is quite all technical comedy stuff at the moment, but we're going to talk about autism in a second, broad wow. appeal. But when you think about the stuff you know, the competitions you enter and the way in which you get known. So in the beginning, it's competitions and then it's Edinburgh. And that's the kind of f- yeah. few steps you have to take as a new comic. And I look back at stuff I did, you know, even though it was only sort of six years ago when I was starting out. And I think I had the confidence to do all those competitions. And I definitely thought I should be in them. And, and now I feel, yeah. if anything, a bit less confident. But I think it's because yeah. you start to know what you don't know. Absolutely. And I think, look, when we all start gigging, I remember doing gigs and they're going, them going well. I had no idea why. And the same, when a gig went badly, I didn't know why it had gone yeah, badly. Yeah, that's the real answer. Whereas now you're, you... I'm, I'm much more in control of my comedy, you know, to not give it, because I can't think of a name for what that thing, you know, I know what I'm doing on stage, I know craft and things like that. So you're, because you're aware of it, you know what can go wrong, which is, I think, why you're confident when I'm terrible for doing gigs coming off and being like, that was terrible. Even when it wasn't. Even if it, like, and I'll be annoyed if something went a bit wrong that, I, that I'm in control of. Yeah. If a gig goes absolutely tits up and it's there's it was yeah, totally yeah. out of my hands yeah. i'm very chilled about it but yeah. i get really 
I, I think as well is as I've become as it's become my job like for a long time, I've got a lot of respect for the professionalism of yeah, comedy. Yeah, yeah. And if I feel like I've done something that might have been better, I feel like I've not been professional enough. And you might have let the night down or the promoter. Yeah, like, like one of the things I absolutely hate is when people go on and do twenty minutes of new material at a weekend club where everyone's paid for a yeah, lot of tickets. Because yeah. I think that's really unprofessional. Yeah, Whereas yeah. I'm totally when I do gigs. All I want is for everyone to go, that was a... I had a great time, that was worth every penny I spent on it. Does that make you, though, less... Um, I, I know, I've heard you say that you not struggle with writing, but it's not the thing you find easiest no, about comedy. No, I do, comedy. I find it really... I find I write stand-up much slower than everything else I do. I'm like, the same, yeah, I find that's the hardest bit for me, is the writing, and that's maybe why we both like emceeing <laughs> as well, because you do get new shit from emceeing, yeah, yeah, don't yeah. you? So I, I, I always have these ideas, like all of us, you know, tons of notes on my iPhone, and then something that I jotted down six months ago that never turned into material and then something will happen in the room and somewhere deep in the recesses of my, oh my brain God, and it comes out and then I'm like oh that's the funny bit of that yeah 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 so I and, and you could argue oh we're like Ross Noble we can write on our feet but actually it just for me it's sheer incompetence you know what it is, is I, think, paper. I think what I've always said is when you're on stage your brain works slightly quicker than in real life yeah, I think like yeah. and that extra 10% speed or that extra gear you can go into yeah. on stage is where inspiration is for me. Yeah. So I'm very much like, I have to go on stage and do new material nights and like read them out and go, I know there's something funny in it. <laughs> I remember there was a routine I had for ages and I used to go and do a regular new material gig with the same audience every week. And I go, look guys, I know this isn't good yet, but I need to just keep saying it. And then one day something something's going to come out and it will work. But you just need to give me this two minutes yeah. to just work through it. And, and they were so lovely, they did. And has it turned into Yeah, now it's a bit, but... It was just really, and it was only because at this gig the audience knew me because I used to do it so much. So I was like, please, can you give me this luxury? Yeah, which you can't really do at the comedy Because I know that, you know, night. lots of people can sit and, like Lee Mack, I read in an interview, sits and writes nine to five. Yeah. And like can write and write and write. And Matt Ford writes for um, 12 hours a day, I think it is, for the seven days before his political party podcast. Wow. He just doesn't drink, writes for 12 hours a day, I think it's, or eight hours a day. Yeah. Um, and just writes and writes and writes, having spent the week, so just to, to prepare for his life, you know, it's wow. a live podcast and it's amazing but that's what he does and I think in a way I think well I don't deserve to be getting what some of the people in the industry are getting because I don't do that yeah but there's also this thing I think and this is a problem in the tech industry that I think is a problem in um, comedy and it's um, it's like this suffering for your art and working oh my god I don't take a day off I write for 12 hours a day and we all feel bad that we're not working hard enough whereas yeah. actually for me to do well in comedy I need to have a life yeah. like I've not really written any stand up this year because I haven't particularly had a life Yeah. and and, the, and I, I find that when I take some time away from stand-up, that's when inspiration hits. And it works differently for everyone. Some people that can write... And, and I've got a couple of friends who are comics who write all the time, like sit and write all day. And I had a conversation with one of them. And I won't name them because it's not fair to kind of say that their oh, technique is wrong. Um, <laughs> but I was like, how much from that session where you're writing for five hours a day yeah. actually ends up in the final set or in the final show? And it was... A minute amount. Like a joke. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think, but it's that thing of going, I feel like I need to be doing more work. But do to you justify, think... And also because it's a job that doesn't feel like a job. I know, so you always feel a bit like... But don't you think, when, when you think, what you said about going to, you know, doing a Saturday or a Friday night gig and thinking, I won't do new material, I've got to... Being a crowd pleaser, which I know is ultimately, we're clowns who yeah, are meant yeah, to yeah. please the crowd, obviously, we're not meant not to... But when you've got a really high standard and maybe a worry that you're not good enough, do you, I sometimes think I don't dare try as much as some other comics do because 100%. I'm determined never to have that gig yeah. where people go, well, you had me for five minutes and then you lost me for the other 13. I, I, I 
I have to have the best gig I can possibly have. Yeah. Uh, even in, I'm terrible for going to new material yeah. nights and doing twenty minutes of old. Yeah. Because I need them to. I need to do well. And it's this weird thing. And it, and you know what? Like I've got loads of mates who are great at going. I'm just going to do badly for a few yeah. months. Especially people who are big enough to go and do like work in progress shows. And stuff. Don't you think that's quite important though? I, I'm. It's, I, it's really important. I think it is, and I'm. Re- I'm also. I think that short term, and a lot of this kind of podcast has ended up with people being about kind of short term, long term. Because in the short term, of course, great that you can always feel good. You can always give people <laughs> yeah. what you want. But if we're actually trying to, when you look at the people that we really admire in the industry, and you think, how are they doing so well? They often are the people who are willing to just bloody try stuff and get uncomfortable and not hide behind the, I know. this is the bit I love. And I mean, even changing like openers, I, I'm really bad. I've got a couple of openers that always work I and use, I hate changing them. I use this. I've probably had the same opener for, I mean, we're, we're talking like six years. Yeah. At club gigs, and at touring gigs are slightly different, but like yeah. I, I, I still use like in clubs, I've got, it's a real mishmash, but like, I do sometimes use stuff that's like eight years old. Yeah. And I'm not precious about that. Yeah. I'm not all about it has to be, because I'm just like, they're here. The audience like it. Especially if it's like a big club, if you're doing like a Glee or a stand, they've paid 20 quid a ticket. They deserve the best night possible. So you do what works. But then if I go and do, say, the Guinea Pig Club or Old Rope, that's what they're there for. So I accept that if I do new material, if I do old material, sorry, I'm cheating them out of the night out they want. Yeah. So I have to go somewhere where it's sort of overtly new material. But even then it's easy to bail isn't it like I find especially the longer bits if I have bits where I'm like I kind of need to this needs to be two or three minutes if it's a new gag or two or I can get through it in about 30 seconds I'm like yeah I don't mind if that doesn't work but when there's one where I know this needs to become a bigger bit and you just watch and people who are really good at improv are always saying to me we'll just follow the funny like it's the worse it gets the more stick with it whereas I'm like the worse this is getting the more I'm about to give you something old I am terrible for going on say like notebook stage and reading and going, I've got like ten minutes of new bits to try here, and then doing like the first two, and then going, I I don't even have the balls to do the yeah. rest of it because I'm so I think it's so terrible in the cold light of standing on stage. But some people, I'm reading Billy Connolly's um, book, Tall Tales and We, whatever it's called. I'll put the link in the show notes, and it's basically him having written down now that he stopped doing stand up. It's him having written down some of his amazing, like the Wildebeest routine and yeah. some of his best routines, and reading them, you absolutely can hear Billy Connolly doing them. But reading them, it's not like they're... They, I mean, they are brilliant. I mean, he's one of the most brilliant comics that ever lived, in my opinion. And thank God he still is alive. But when you read them, you're like, but actually, as a piece of writing, that's not amazing. No. His insight and his performance, and he is amazing. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. then I think, well, if we're always going to have to do these kind of crafted bits that work, is there a sort of ceiling on where you can get as a comic? Maybe we, Absolutely. Maybe we need to be willing to fail a lot more. And also, I mean, I really believe in... Gary Delaney once said, there are two types of comics. There's performers who are masquerading as writers and writers who are masquerading as performers. Mm. And I'm very much in the performer masquerading yeah. as a writer camp. Yeah. And sometimes, when I'm doing a bit and I go, oh, maybe this isn't very well written, I'm really worried about this... And I've only just, I mean, the last couple of years before the pandemic or the last year or so, I'm like, maybe I can make this funny by, I used to really look down on, you know, you'd hang out with other comedians being like, oh, well, the writing, that's terrible. And I'm like, if I can get a laugh by pulling a face or doing a silly voice yeah. now, I'm like, I couldn't give a shit. Yeah. I'm going to do that because that's my strength, actually. Are you happy to, so you're clown about and really inhabit it? And if I can, about. yeah. And I think, especially if I'm like, if I get quite comfortable with a routine. So even on when I was doing like the last tour, like there was a couple of routines that I'd not done for years and I'd brought them back. And when I did them for the first time, like they were okay. And because I performed them more and I yeah. kind of really tapped into that. And you'd got better along the way. I'd gotten better. And also I think 
it, it wasn't about the words actually and because really like a load of my stuff it isn't about the words it's about like what you do with them it's never been I'm not a like it's not like it's all excellent one-liners you know it is it's all about people liking you and you know buying into you as a character you know in quotation marks a character on stage and do um, you think that had so you as a character so getting to do the extra factor when you were only 22 yeah massive show so you replaced Dolly Murs I did and yeah. worked with Caroline Flack yeah and that whole thing do, do you think that came too early for you um yes and no I think it's one of those things that I remember having a meeting with an agent at the time just afterwards and they're like you shouldn't have done it and I was like but you'd have been an idiot to say no when it was like also really helpful to tell you that when you have yeah, done it they were it. like oh you know maybe it wasn't the right thing and I was like but it was really good and actually like it opened up loads of things for me like I really enjoy <laughs> I'm one of the few people that do and do like I don't mind corporate work like mm. I, I really like it and I kind of do it uh, and I've kind of got it sussed and it opened up that world for yeah. me and that is a good world that I also a, I drink richly yeah, in yeah, that yeah. cup like you I yeah. really and I, I like it and yeah. I think if you like like a lot of people think it's soul destroying whereas actually I don't mind it at all yeah therefore it opened up that and because and, of the profile so people wanted you because they knew yeah, you from absolutely. the telly and also yeah. like, cons- like sort of that was eight years ago and I've sort of been consistently on television since and I think the right thing I think without that I think I I think I'm at a point now where something needs to come along in the next couple of years that's the right thing for me that will then sort of push me to the next level. But without that, I wouldn't have been able to kind of go, well, no, that's not the right thing. And I tried loads of different things that haven't quite fitted me, which no one, lots of people don't get that luxury of doing loads of different shows and things like that. So, And is it, so being in that, as you know, I used to work in reality TV, so yeah. I did a lot of reality TV and obviously, you know, incredible sort of tragedy, what happened to Caroline yeah. Flack. And in a way... I guess you having come so close to that world and still being in it, but not at the point where anyone can literally take your life away from you by bullying you, trolling you. Absolutely. It's it's and and did that? Did you get a sense of that working so close to a reality show? Was yeah. there? Did you did you get a sense of the sort of cynical side of well, those shows? I did, and also it was this thing of like I was twenty two. I was still living at home with my parents. I was kind of like a gigging comic. Like yeah. I was doing the clubs, and it was kind of going well. And then all of a sudden. Um, you know, I, I sort of went into that show and it was mad. Like it was, and it was when X Factor, they were still getting 10 million viewers. The spin-off was getting, you know, 2 million. And it was, um, and it was this kind of big circus. It was absolutely insane. Um, and all of a sudden the show starts and I'm getting like 8,000 tweets a night about mm. this show, about what people think about me. And it was horrible. Like a lot and it's of the time. not, is it, the extra factor's live, so it goes out right after, live, well, yeah. the first half of it is pre-recorded for like, yeah. judge, you know, the auditions yeah. and things, and then it's And then live. it's a live response. But also, it's just, it was this kind of thing of, I really struggled with it to begin with, and then I spoke to my dad about it, and he was like, it's these, it's people at home having a go at someone 20 years younger than them yeah. for doing something yeah. they couldn't do. Yeah. Um, and now, I mean, I couldn't... Oh, you know, I, I love your dad for that. Yeah, he was yeah. really good, actually. Yeah. And um and it was and it was one of those where you're like oh this is actually awful and I think as a man it's much easier because the thing they didn't like about me they were like you're not funny yeah, you're not funny but they weren't going for you're your not appearance. funny whereas with Caroline it's appearance it's everything yeah. and I think um you know if if a woman is on a panel show and people don't like her they will tweet about having her raped or something yeah. absolutely horrendous yeah. whereas. As a man, I mean, you're not impervious to those insults, but people don't think to use them on you, so it doesn't hit as deep, I don't think. But it must at 22, though. That is, I mean, that's younger than one of my kids is now, and the thought that one of my kids would go through that and have thousands of people hating on them. How did your parents, you know, how did they they, 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 they were they protective of you? Yeah, they were, and like, I mean, 
so my dad wouldn't look at anything. And, and even now, like if I do things, like when I did Dancing on Ice a few months ago, um, I was just like, look, just don't bother going on Twitter. Because that's kind of the biggest <laughs> thing I've been on for a while. I was like, don't even bother looking. But my mum can't help herself. She sits there and looks through it. And she's like, and what well, they used to call me, they'd be like, you had three bad ones and 80 good ones tonight about this show. And I'm like, I don't want an, I don't look anymore. I don't care. I was like, you know, I'm, I, they, they're watching me doing my dream job. I couldn't give a shit what they think, actually. And is that your mum trying to protect you from, is, is she almost taking the bullet for you so you don't have to? No, I think what they, my mum and dad are very much, and I've, I've seen them this weekend, they're very much like, you know, um, we think you should be bigger. So they're tr- I think they're looking at it being like, what's the public mood on Matt? Like, right. it, like, are people enjoying him or is this like, is he just not clicking with people? I think as it's gone on and you know, eight years later, they're like, so when I did Dancing on Ice, I got like really lovely response, even though I was only in it for a week. Um, <laughs> but it was sort of overwhelmingly nice. And they're like, see, people do like you, like you're doing the right thing. You're, d-. And I think it's for them because it's such a, an alien job. They're like, has he picked the right thing for his life? And if people like me, then they're going, well, he has picked the right So thing. it's a way of affirming their son's life choice. And yeah, is it, I think um, so. And in terms of the, um, your family, your mum's got Romani gypsy blood, is that right? Yes. Yeah. So I, um, my mum is um, uh, one of the, well, my grandmother was a Lee, like as in Gypsy Rose Lee, yeah. was, um, oh, we're related brilliant. to her in East London. Ah, yeah. So, um, lots of lavender handed out. Well, I mean, so we, I did a show in Edinburgh when I was doing a show a few years ago. This guy came, and he was very eccentrically dressed. He came up, I came up after the show. I was like, oh, I really enjoyed that. And he went, um, he went, I'm friends with your nan's family, the Lees. I know your, I know your uncle. I know all these people. And I was like, oh, amazing. And he went, so tell me, what's the power you've inherited? Really? And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, obviously, because like, my great aunt was a palm reader and all this kind of stuff. And he went, you must have a power. What's your power? And then he went, I've got it. The way you hold an audience. That's the magic you've got from the family. <laughs> that was before the Just the Tonic Birmingham gig. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which, uh, yeah, so it's kind of this really, I don't know, I mean, I don't know bits about it, but like, we used to go and visit my great aunt. And um, you go to a house and she had a caravan in her garden where uh, a retired Thai trapeze artist lived when they were in the circus <laughs> together because she did palm reading and um, tarot cards and all that. So really you being a comedian is quite conventional in the scheme of what's Pretty much, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think, um, you know, I, I always just think I can't wait until I get famous enough to do Who Do You Think You Are? Because I think I'd have a yeah. really good episode. Yeah, no, that would de- and then your mum and dad would be vindicated because everyone would love you and your Absolutely, roots. and also it's what's tricky with my mum and dad as well is I think with any parent, you, they want to they want to kind of you know quantify success in their world. Yeah. So when I was doing the extra factor, my dad could go, my son hosts the extra factor. Yeah. Everyone Very knows relatable. what that is. Whereas now, when it's like, oh, what does your son do? Oh, he's a comedian. Oh, is he on telly and things? You're like, yeah. What's he on? And you're like, have you seen Celebability yeah. on ITV2? Well, he goes on that sometimes. <laughs> it's hard to even say that one, isn't it? Yeah, it's slightly different. You know, it's when you tell people you do it, and they're like, have. The first question is always, have you been on live at the yeah, Apollo, Yeah, 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 I know. And, it, and you know, you want to go, well, no, I haven't, but I have been on some other things that are okay. Or just start going, yes, I have. Have you not seen my episode? Well, that's the thing, is I think, think the, these days... The lying, I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. Whereas I guess your one, your first one was QI, wasn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, it was. Your first TV Yeah, game. it was. And everyone knows QI, so it's a... And it was a good one for the parents. My parents who definitely will be listening to this because they uh, always support the podcast. But they, um, yeah, and it's a really good one for them. It's a nice one and middle class parents are like, oh, we love QI. Everyone knows QI. Yeah. Whereas I think I've done lots of things that a lot of people haven't seen. (laughs) But then a lot of people have. And I guess that's the thing, isn't it? You've got that point where you're more likely to be recognised somewhere than I would be. Yeah, it's, it's, but it's, it's that weird thing of I've been, and also just because I've been around for so long now, I kind of live in this world of um, 
people go... Do I know you from somewhere? I'm sort of vaguely. I've Do they think some... they know you? Because that's the other thing that happens. People actually just think they actually know you. They they're like, I can't place you. You're someone I, I know. I'll tell you what happened the other day though. So I went out for uh, some drinks with Rosie Jones, who yeah. is a friend of mine. Yeah. And we went out, and this woman went, "Oh my God, you're you're a comedian." And Rosie went, "We're both comedians." The woman went, "I don't recognise you." And a man at another table went. Don't worry, mate. I know who you are, and it was. And then Rosie made did a vote to see who knew who who was more famous, uh, which I didn't enjoy. Um, but it was that like, like that guy obviously walked in and he's gone. But I, he, I'm not famous enough that he's like I'm so excited he wants to come up to me. But he's gone. Oh, there's that. Guy. I'll vouch for you. No, there's yeah. that guy. I think yeah. I'm one of those. You wouldn't stop me in the street, but you go. Oh, that's that guy off that thing. Trouble is, it's hard to compete with Rosie at the moment because her star is rising very meteorically. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And um, and in your, in I'm not of- an idiot. That's why you know. That's why I mean, that's the only reason I'm friends with her. I'm hitching my wagon to that. <laughs> we're all best friends with Rosie she's um, and when you look at your family so your parents obviously really supportive of you yes. doing comedy and you and I have in common that you have an autistic brother yes. and I have an autistic son yes and they are quite similar in age, I think. How old is your... 22. Yeah, my son's 23. Yeah. Mine's actually just got a job as a zookeeper. So that's... Um, really? it's been It's been all over Twitter, Twitter this weekend, Oh, Matt. my goodness, So, yeah, where? he Painton Zoo in Devon. That's so exciting. My most liked ever tweet uh, about my son, not about me. So he... Um, yeah, so he's just got that job. So what we could have talked about is, like, what are they going to do with themselves? And yeah. That. But so, yeah, so Jake's just... So Jake's passion his whole life has been animals, particularly yeah. monkeys and apes. So he's been obsessed with primates his whole life and desperate to be a zookeeper. Like when he was three, we were like, what are you going to be? And he was like, I'm going to be a zookeeper. Oh, that's amazing. And try keeping an autistic kid from their dream and it, you just forget about it. Dog so with he a bone, isn't it? Dog with a bone. So he has been on a fast track to be a primate specialising zookeeper and has now got a job working in the mammal section at Painton Zoo. Oh, my goodness. So And it's definitely, I think the reason everyone loved the tweet is because I, I put down the fact that he was an animal-obsessed autistic kid, and I think anyone who understands autism knows that if that passion can translate into the That's job... That's the jackpot. That is the... And it's you must be a, so proud and pleased. Oh, I've been crying for, like, 24 hours. Oh, I, I'm brilliant. probably very unwitty today because I'm all just a bit raw, and, oh, my goodness, my son's doing this amazing thing. And but there's lots of stuff. So we've worked. We, you and I, you very kindly asked me to do your um, National Autistic Society benefit gig that you yeah. do every year. So your experience as an older brother. So you're eight years older than your brother. Yes, I so am. you remember life before you had um, a little brother. Yeah, and, just about. Yeah. And up, so, so how is it for you being neurotypical with a neurodiverse you sibling? Know, you know, the thing with it is, is um, I when I when I was a teenager and he was. Um, uh, an autistic young boy who just wanted to hang out with his older brother but because there's such a big gap with us it's like my mum was always said it's like having two only yeah, children really yeah. um, and you know you don't want to hang out with him and I was really impatient with him and as I've gotten older like we've really we've connected much better when did and he get his diagnosis how old was he, he was really young he was like three or four okay um, which is quite yeah because now my son was diagnosed as a teenager oh wow okay I mean we sort of guessed he was probably on the spectrum but yeah, I yeah, in yeah. my well I was going to say middle class ignorance um, I know that lots of people listening will be kind of interested to hear about this and most people listening will have a link to autism directly or indirectly and I sort of went through the thing of thinking Jake is on the spectrum but what's the point of me getting a label for that I know he probably is yeah. I didn't realise until he got his diagnosis and because he was that bit older they kind of presented it to him almost as an option because he was that bit older and they said look the kind of tests we've done and it took about two years of various yeah, things yeah, yeah. to it's get really hard it's to get really hard um, if you go via the NHS and do this sort of thing and, and they and then they said look you know we, we would probably class you as being on the autistic spectrum but you can or cannot take this as a sort of label or as a it's up to you kind of thing and then he said 
said, and I felt so guilty afterwards. He said, you know, I'm so I want to take it on because it's given me a map of my own mind, and I understand why I've just not been the same as lots of people of I know. And then I felt awful because I thought, oh, there's me being all sort of, oh, you know, I'm a guardian reader, and we'll just love you through it, and not <laughs> thinking that he, he might actually want some help. Yeah. I mean, there is no help forthcoming immediately when you get the diagnosis, as you, you'll know as well with your brother. But having him diagnosed that young, what what got your? How did he get diagnosed? So, so he got diagnosed. They were my mum was pretty sure, and they went through the process. And I think they might pay to go like to miss the NHS bit which is very fortunate a lot of people can't do mm. but my mum knew that, that if you had a diagnosis there was help available mm. like at school be it an extra hour reading with mm. someone who wasn't and and my brother has had you know um, tutors and everything else mm. my brother has worked very hard to be average like mm. to get C's across the board he mm. has worked his ass off and not because he's not clever but because no, he just because doesn't play the game and, like, of school and like he's not necessarily as academic as everyone else mm. whereas I put in 5% effort and then 100% at the end mm. and did quite well because I was always quite academic uh, but cripplingly lazy mm-hmm. um, and and I think it was my mum knew from friends that if you get that label early through primary school and stuff there is help available mm. and you need every extra little bit you can mm. but I think um, and you know my mum ended up becoming the SEN governor for her school and then my brother's secondary school and got and really involved and that's the special educational needs for yes, people yeah, who yeah. don't yeah, yeah, yeah. So, because often that SEN provision is really lacking I mean the big thing that I hear from people even when Jake had been diagnosed, it was just so hard to access the help. And you and I have had conversations where you literally, where do I go for help? Where do I go for help helping him find employment? Where, yeah. as the parents, what are you supposed to do to know how to help your kid? And so your mum getting in on the inside. Well, that's basically, my mum basically decided that she was going to, she was, be the help. she was going to become the person yeah. that decided what happened so she would know how the system worked. Yeah. And, and I think a big, a big struggle with, um, you know, my mum had no illusions about him having it, but I think a lot of parents don't want a diagnosis because they, they're mourning the child of their mind in the future. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, if you accept your That's child really, has autism, yeah. they're not going to... Well, I dreamt my child was going to be X, Y or Z and now he can't be or she can't be. So you don't want it because you're in denial about... You know, you, you feel like you're killing off your dream child almost. And I think that's really hard for some parents. Whereas my mum was very much like, no, my mum now just wishes she got me diagnosed. She mm. thinks that she's convinced that I'd have had a diagnosis. I was a very eccentric child. But I'm very social and things like that. But um, it, with my brother, it was it was going to be a bit trickier. Like, my brother's quite quiet. He's really kind and gentle and soft, my brother. But, you know, he's he is quite young. For, he's 22, but he's a young, very young 22. Which is, again, in keeping know. with the diagnosis, right? Absolutely. I think it does take yeah. a bit longer. They say sort of three to five years. Absolutely. Like, for example, Alex is, you know, this year he's got his first of a girlfriend. And, like, it's really nice and sweet. And, like, they're so good together. But... Um, you know, it's just taking him that little bit longer than the other boys. And yeah. I think and um and I think he's really proud of his autism actually. Because to begin with he was quite uncomfortable with it. Once he got older we kinda of told him he was autistic and then when he was a teenager he didn't really want to be different and all my brother wanted was exactly the same thing that everyone else had because mm. he wanted to fit in. And then as he's become an adult, sort of from 18, 17, 18 onwards, he's really lent into it as his identity. And he does lots for the National Autistic Society. Yeah. He's an ambassador. And you're an ambassador as well, We're both right? ambassadors, yeah. but um, he's done lots. And he kind of made this video about his autism when he was in college and things. And it's become the thing that he, like, feels is the most special about himself. Mm-hmm. And the thing that defines him as an individual, which is really good because I think he's taken something that would have been a weakness mm-hmm. for some people and he's decided that it's his strength and it's what's the best thing about him in the world. And I think that's really inspirational. I I, I don't think I would have ever dealt with um, having a diagnosis as well as my brother. 
it, like he's very good. Even though it. your mum's like you're having a diagnosis, you should have had one. You're the odd but one. But my, my brother is—he's a—I mean, like relentlessly positive. I've never met anyone else that sings in the shower every day. Really, like, he's so happy, <laughs> and he—you know—he he, doesn't—he doesn't want the world. Like he just wants to be the best him, and it's really nice. Like he's great, really. And what would you say to people? I'm about to ask you the three questions I ask everyone yeah. on the podcast, but this is not one of them. But it, um, one of the things that. One of the reasons I like talking about the stuff that Jake's done is because he's an older kid like your your brother is now um, with autism. And it's quite nice to look at also the benefits of autism and the yeah, success yeah, yeah, that absolutely. can come out of it. And there is no question, you know, one of the things Jake said in this job interview, he talked about his autism and he said, on the one hand, it can make things a little bit more difficult because I won't get the nuances if you're giving me feedback at work. And if you say, oh, the Ocarpies could do with a bit of a better clean I'll be like, right, but if you say, could you please clean out the Okapis a bit more rigorously, I'll get that. But he said, but on the plus side, I've got, I have got a sort of encyclopedic knowledge of animals, and I, yeah. I, I'm, and there are definite advantages to what he's doing. And I think it's brilliant not to underplay how difficult it is, but also because it is, it's the hardest and best thing I've ever done is bringing up Jake. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's been complicated, but it's been amazing. Um, what would you say, what would a bit of kind of advice or wisdom be about that particular thing, about having someone in your family who you love dearly with autism? The, the thing I find really hard for Alex and like what I would say to people is, you know, he really would like to work in television. That's his kind of dream. And like, he's done a little bit here and there, a bit of running and things like that. But is this where you asked me to get him a job live on the podcast? No, 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 no not at all. I wasn't yes. even thinking no, like I'm... that. But, um, but the problem is, is like he's and he's applied to all these schemes and things. And even he went to one that was for disability, a Channel 4 thing. And he said the problem was, is everyone there, uh, he was the only one that was um, not neurotypical. Yeah. So he was still at a disadvantage, even right. though it was a disability thing, because right. in the end, it was like people, you know, with various things like maybe maybe they didn't have a, like a, certain a physical limb, disability yeah, or something yeah. like that and he but, but and i think especially in television which you know you have to kind of you know get a lot of the work done it's but quite you've got nuanced to, yeah it's yeah. nuanced and i think if if there's anyone in any industry that could just take a chance to be patient with someone and give them that little bit more time they'll probably end up with the best employee they've ever had yeah. like like jake you know like if you give them the chance he'll know everything and he'll just get it yeah. more than anyone else but yeah. you just need to have that 10% more patience with them to tell them the right thing and if you do tell them not exactly what you want don't be upset with them because it's not their fault yeah you know? yeah and i think that's that's what i would say is any advice is if you are in a position where you can give someone with autism a chance, do it because it will benefit you more than anything. Yeah, and I'll put a link to a couple of books in the um, show notes. Neuro Tribes by Sam yeah. Silberman is a brilliant book at looking at what the benefits are of neurodiversity oh God, and yeah. how neurodiverse will inherit the earth. Namaste, what would you pick as your namaste motherfucking moment? I would pick... The moment like that was the first time I ever sold out the theatre in my hometown. When I mean, so this is Didcot. Didcot, yeah, yep. Didcot, and um, it's only like a two hundred and fifty seater. It's not like it's this huge, big theatre. But um, I'd, I'd sold it out for my uh, first tour, and the gig it couldn't have been better. And like all my loved ones were in the audience, and it was just that was the moment I thought. I, if nothing else ever happens, this is it for me. Were there people from school and people who... Yeah, a few people, all my friends were there. And, and also a lot of them had never seen me. And I'd kind of 
so a lot of my friends came along when I was really bad at the beginning. They'd all come to gigs and see me play to 12 people and it'd be awful. Um, whereas there was lots of people that was kind of their first thing and they were all like, oh, like he can, this is a real thing that he can do. Were there any of your nemesis there? Was there anyone where you're like, you see, no, you're a dickhead, I, you I, hated me at school, I don't look think at me they now. were, you know. Um, I, think, I think they would have probably been annoyed at giving me £16. <laughs> so that's why they did I just come. thought your mum just bought out the theatre. She's like, well, look. She, my mum basically does the, the press for that show. Like she she just tells everyone it's on Facebook everywhere but I, you know and um, whenever I do it but she yeah it's really um it's that would be my moment that I was like if nothing else ever happened and even now if nothing else happened that would be my fondest memory of do comedy. you always do Didcot then on your tour yeah you I do because it's the only do. day that makes any money <laughs> <laughs> it's the show that pays for the rest of the tour you could just basically. do a week a residence you know what Didcot. I think next time I might just do two nights there yeah like Siegfried and Roy in Vegas yeah, yeah, set up. T- hopefully there's 200 people in the country that are willing to travel to Didcot to see me and then I can do a second night and what's your favourite joke? My favourite joke, it, it doesn't have to be mine, does it? No, it doesn't. No, so my favourite joke is the Gary Delaney joke. I accidentally filled the escort up with Diesel the other day. She died. That's my favourite joke. <laughs> I think that's a really perfect joke. <laughs> and if you could give one bit of life advice to anybody listening, what one would One bit it of be? life advice. Um, I would. The bit of life advice I would give is... Um, don't throw everything into your career because I I find that I really love my job but all of my joy comes out of my friends and my family and things now and that makes me better at my job whereas I think to begin with I was obsessed with doing 300 gigs a year and doing everything I possibly could whereas now I really relish like the bits where I'm not working are you able to say no to things then yeah but like not often um, I find that so hard still. I sort of think if I say no to things, then I'll be found out. I'll never work again and I'll wish I'd said yes. Yeah, but you know what? I also, as I've gotten older, I used to want to do things for... I was very ambitious and career-driven for a long time in comedy. And, you know, if and I it do, is so competitive as It's well. so competitive yeah. and it's really hard to put blinkers on and not see what everyone else is yeah, doing. Some, they find, say you should compete just with yourself. Yeah, and I find, I find the mute button on Instagram very helpful for that. When people yeah. are doing lots of good things, I'm like, I don't need to see that I'm really happy for them, but yeah. it doesn't make me feel good about it. So do you pick people who are doing really well and then go, I'm muting you? If I see they're doing something, I think, oh, I really wish I was doing things like that. that. I just go, look, I'm muting them for a bit just because it's making me sad. Until they have a really bad life experience and and then then they're welcome. Unmute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, someone's been (laughs) cancelled. Let's have a look what's going on in their life. (laughs) My best friend again. Someone's on talk radio. Let's see them uh, absolutely collapse into right wing nuttiness. Um, But it's a... but, but as I've gotten, I now do things if I think they'll be fun. Yeah. So even with like show, like, you know, I do things where I'm like, oh, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to go anywhere. But will I have a laugh? And I've done some really lovely things. It's the same with like, for years, they asked me to do Dancing on Ice for years and years. And I always said no, because I was like, oh my God, everyone will think that's naff. It's not a good career move. Mm-hmm. And then this year they asked me to do it. And they asked me to be the stand-in for like, because everyone wanted to do it because no one had mm. worked. Everyone wanted to do everything this year. It yeah. made it very hard. It did, yeah. And they asked me and I thought, hmm. Like before I'd been going, oh, you know, it was it would be a bad move. No no comedian's ever done it. I, they asked me to do The Jungle before Joel loads of times. And I was like, no comedian's ever done it. It's not the right thing for a comedian to Are do. Are you kicking yourself now? 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It Absolutely. did kind of work out for him, It sort of it? made him a multi-millionaire. Yeah, so, it sort of did. Yeah. You know, but, but so now with the, with the Dancing on Ice, I thought, I don't actually care what it does for my career. 
it looks like it's going to be I think it'll be fun mm-hmm. and if I throw myself into it and I enjoyed every moment of it and it was one of the best things I've ever done because it was a laugh mm-hmm. and that's how I decide things now so you're able to say no to things and go after the things that you actually if want I to think do. something's going to be a miserable experience even you know there's even things that I think I would have done years ago that everyone talks about being miserable experiences like certain shows which I don't think it's fair for me to name because I've not done them um, whereas now I would think twice about doing those whereas before I don't care that it's going to be horrible I remember years ago I did Buzzcocks uh, when it was on never mind the Buzzcocks and that was, always looked like an incredibly tough show to do it was do. absolutely horrible yeah. like it was lovely really to hard. watch horrible to and, do but it was one of those things as well that was like one of my bucket list shows to do mm. I loved never mind the Buzzcocks mm. and when they asked me to do it I was like oh my god this is like a dream come true and it was a living nightmare was like, it did it, it was, come across badly or just feel no, bad no it, they edited it fine but like it just wasn't a nice place to work mm. at the time like, I didn't feel welcomed there like um, it was it was a really unpleasant experience I didn't feel um, I don't know it just wasn't I just didn't like it and and now I think oh I'd probably if knowing what I know now I would never I won't do it I had an agent once who said um, not doing something is worse is better than doing it badly you can never put that genie back in the bottle can you if yeah. you do something and fuck it up so you might as well just not do it because that's a be- that is the safer option if you really think it's going to be bad or you're not going to enjoy it and that's going to reflect badly. Yeah. And I've done loads of things over the years I haven't enjoyed. Um, but the ones the ones that I've gone, oh, I'm not really bothered about my career. Like I did a show a couple of years ago about, I did a ghost hunting show called Celebrity Haunted Mansion Live. And it was this mad five days where we went, we put a load of celebrities in a hotel and Christine Lampard and I hosted it and it was batshit crazy, right? And it was on a channel no one had ever heard of and um, I didn't care where it was going to go but I was like, this sounds like it's going to be absolutely one of the most fun things ever. And it was great. It did nothing for my career but I had a great week. And you didn't have to eat bugs in a jungle. I didn't have to eat bugs in a jungle although if you are listening and you work on that show (laughs) I very much will eat bugs in a jungle. That was the wonderful Matt Richardson. Every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I am going to do. And this week, I'm going to read one of the many long ignored books piling up on my office table, Ditching Imposter Syndrome by Claire Joza. Hope I'm saying that right. Might be Yoza. Who knows? The book revolves around a five-step approach for getting rid of imposter syndrome, and the blurb on the back says, the practical strategies will help you identify and then fully release imposter syndrome's subconscious drivers in a way that's fast, fun, and forever. It's funny, I've always come at it with more of a sort of embracing imposter syndrome approach on the basis that at least if you suffer from it, you're probably not a narcissist or a psychopath or both. But hey, I'm going to read this book with an open mind and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So that's nearly it for this week. But listen up, motherfuckers. I love you and I love that you're listening to the podcast and I especially love all the messages I get from you every week telling me it makes you laugh and it makes you cry but please also let it make you rate it on iTunes leave a review and tell everyone and I mean literally everyone you meet how great it is thanking you kindly so that's it for the show for this week thanks again so much to Matt for joining me Namaste.
Day, Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, with music by Jake Yap and produced by Mike Hansen for Pod People Productions. We'll be back in your feed next Monday when I'll be talking to filmmaker, comedian, writer and the original Yes Man, Danny Wallace. Like my friend returning a spatula to me, a rubber spatula, but he brought it on a night out to the pub because that was when he was going to see me. So now I've got to carry a red rubber spatula around with me all night. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Namaste, motherfuckers. Pod people.